I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, page 686, Isaiah chapter 11, page 686. Hope uh, you dads are having a good Father's Day. My children are still at the age when Father's Day is cool, and uh, they're like five and seven, and they're, you know, they've been making cards all week, and they go around the house and they find their toys, and they wrap them up in blankets for me. And that's, so I'm going to get a lot of their toys today, uh, which I'll be getting back. I, I'm told this enthusiasm for Father's Day kind of peters out as time goes on, but I'm, so I'm enjoying it now. Uh, it's, in fact, yesterday, they got so excited. Yesterday, they, they jumped the gun, and they went downstairs, and they took out their army men, and they spelled Happy Father's Day in army men. You know? Oh, <laughs> isn't that cute? I mean, I didn't even see. I almost tripped on it. And, you know, they were like, Dad, you're going to step on it. Anyway. Isaiah chapter 11, page 686. Uh, We started looking at Isaiah 11 last week, but today we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 11, verses 10 and 11. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Now some of you read those verses and you're like, this is why I stay out of the Old Testament prophets. Because what in the world is this talking about? That's why I like to stay in the New Testament with the Gospels and the Epistles. I can understand that. But, you know, what is this all about? We've got, uh, we got a root, or I guess he's a banner, and then there's all these places. I've heard of Egypt, but, you know, where's Elam and Cush? And, of course, Hamath. You know, what is that? Uh, you know, what is this talking about? And it's about regathering people and exiles. And it's for this reason a lot of times when we come to Old Testament uh, prophetic literature in particular, people kind of go, okay, I'm going to jump over to the book of Romans. That makes more sense. So uh, what I want to do is kind of dig into this text. And, and what often needs to take place when we come to passages like this is we have to understand the historic context of this passage. And so often when you dig into the history behind the Old Testament, it, it makes these kind of obscure, uh, esoteric sort of passages just really come to life and they make a lot of sense. So let me just give you the quick thumbnail historical background of this passage, and then I think we'll, we'll, di- we'll dig into it, and it's going to really come to life. And believe it or not, it's actually going to be practical for today. And so I, I want to sort of take you from way back then to today as we study through this passage. So, um, well, first of all, the historic background. The year is somewhere around 730s, 720s B.C., And that's not significant for us, but it was significant for the people of Israel because at that time the the people of Israel had been sacked by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, In fact, if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, this little insert in your bulletin has got a map on the front. This is a a map of ancient Palestine, probably around uh, 722 B.C., somewhere around there. The reason 722 B.C. is important is because that's when Uh, Israel was totally conquered by the Assyrians. Now, if you notice on the map, all the places in dark gray, all those places in dark gray are places that had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Now, why that's significant for the Bible is that if you see the place there, Samaria, right in the middle, that province, and then above it, Megiddo, 
Megiddo and Samaria used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. But not anymore. Now they are just Assyrian real estate. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. Now, turn over to the next page. Here's another map. This is to give you a sense of how vast the Assyrian Empire was in its day. This is, you know, take the front map and pull back into outer space even further. And what you see here is the Middle East. Palestine, of course, is that little area there next to the Mediterranean Sea. That's about where we were looking on the other map. But at, at its zenith, the, the Assyrian Empire was all the area that's shaded. It was an enormous empire, vast, uh, voracious, conquering kings who just gobbled up everyone they could defeat and put underneath uh, their, their shoe. Now, what, what's significant about this, uh, this map is just to see uh, how large this empire is and then to ask yourself the question, if you were an Assyrian king, how in the world would you control an empire of that size? I know you wonder such things a lot of times, but, but if you were in control of like the known world of your day, how do you keep it under control? So, so you, go into, you go into Israel, let's say, and you defeat their army, and you capture their generals and kill them, and you capture their king, and maybe you kill him or send him into prison. Okay, fine, you killed the army, but now what do you do? You have all these people uh, left over. How do you control them? Because, you know, when the Assyrians went in, they didn't just wipe out everybody. They killed the, the leaders and the, the armies. But there's all these people left over. How do you organize them? How do you control them? How do you make sure that if you don't march your armies out the next year, these people won't organize and stage a revolt against you? And then you've got to march your armies back in, which is very expensive. So, so how do you control territory like that? The Assyrians, as well as the Babylonians who followed them, had an interesting uh, foreign policy. Their policy was conquest followed by deportation or exile. In other words, once the Assyrians conquered you, once they killed your armies and your leaders, they would take a large percentage of the population and put them other places in their empire. So they were kind of shuffling, you know, it was like a big international game of, uh, you know, shell, shell game. You know, they're constantly moving people around. They'd conquer you, they'd put you over here, they'd conquer them, they'd put you over there. So they're constantly shuffling people around their empire. The idea was, look, if people are all scattered all over, they're not going to unionize. They're not going to come together. They're not going to get a nationalistic spirit. If just you and a couple settlers are thrown way over to the... Uh, Elam on the other side of the world, you're not going to say, let's get together and fight against Assyria. I mean, your, your spirit's going to be broken. So that was the Assyrian policy. It was just mix it all up. It was kind of like when um, you know, as a little kid, I used to pick the dandelions that had gone to seed. And you go, you know, watch the seeds blow. That's the Assyrian policy. Just pluck a nation, you know. Now, of course, that I'm mowing the lawn, whenever I see my kids doing that, I'm like, don't! You're going to spread the dandelion seeds. But anyway... <laughs> So, so God was punishing Israel for its sin by allowing Assyria to pluck it and just go... And now God's people, the people of God that, that He promised to Abraham, that Moses led out of the wilderness, that Joshua led into the promised land, this people of God that God's been like nurturing and cradling for centuries are just like, gone. Like, you know, what is going to happen to God's plan? God's plan was to use this people. I mean, to start, go back to Abraham all the way up to the present. Now what's going to happen? Where are they? And so that's why... Now let's go back and look at verse 10-11. See if it doesn't sound a little more um, coherent to you. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people and the nations will rally to him. See, it's a gathering together. 
and His place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time. Now, when was the first time? That was from Exodus. That, that was when Moses led the people out of the Promised Land. That was the first time that He gathered His people together. He's going to do something like the Exodus again. It's going to be Exodus the sequel. God's going to gather the people together and He's going to uh, reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from... Then he lists all these places. Assyria, Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, Cush, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, from the islands of the sea. So now, hopefully that prophecy starts to make a little more sense now. This is an incredible prophecy of hope. That sometime in the future, God's going to reverse. The, he's going to find all the little seeds that got blown all over. And he's going to gather them together. I mean, who could find the seeds of a dandelion after it's been blown in the wind? But God can. Like that song we sang, God knows our name. God knows where everything is. God knows where every molecule is all the time. There's no Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. He knows the electrons, where they're going, where they are. He knows everything. And He knows where His people are. And He's going to regather them. He's going to bring them to Himself. So, let's read a little bit more now. Now let's dig into the prophecy. Verse 10. In that day, in this future period, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to the people. Now, who's the root of Jesse? Well, he's the same guy we saw back in chapter 11, verse 1. Remember 11, 1? We studied it last week. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, some of you are going, wait a minute, is he a branch or is he a root? Which one is it? Well, you know, the Hebrew word for root can kind of mean like root or it can also mean like a, a sucker that's sent out and then roots itself. You know, the word's a little more malleable than our English words. The point is, it's the same guy. It's just different words to describe him. It's the Messiah. It's the future leader. It's the descendant of King David who's going to be like King David II. He's going to be Moses the sequel. He's going to lead his people together. There's this new person God is going to raise up. And the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. Now, what's that about? What's the banner thing about? Well, the banner, or you call it a flag, it's a... You know, flags and banners in the ancient world, they were used to gather people together and organize people. I mean, think about it. How do you organize an enormous group of people if you don't have a PA system, if you don't have TV or radio? You know, imagine a big stadium with 30,000 people. How do you get them together if there's no loudspeaker to tell everyone what to do? And one of the ways they organize people in the ancient world is with flags. You know, they hold up their flag. You know, there's all these people who've got to get organized to go to war, and, and this unit over here holds up its flag, and you know, you're the unit of the, you know, winged horse, or you're the unit of the fire-breathing chicken, or whatever, and, and you look for your flag, and you go, oh, there's the fire-breathing chicken, or there's the winged horse, you know, that's my troop, and you go over by your troop. That's how they would organize groups of people, especially on the battlefield where things were just so chaotic. They had to have ways of organizing large groups of people. Now, of course, today we don't have that problem on the battlefield. We're high tech. You know, you see the soldiers over there in Iraq. They have little you know, mouthpieces where they can communicate with different squads. And somewhere, I don't understand this, but 100 miles away, 200 miles away, there's a, a camp where the commanders are sitting there with their television screens and they're getting live satellite feeds of the battlefield and live feeds from these drone aircraft. And so they can coordinate in real time the, the tactical movements of platoons. I mean, the, the kind of technology and organization that goes into modern warfare is just astounding. But way back then, they just had flags. Okay, that's all they had. <laughs> they didn't have walkie-talkies, they didn't have satellites, they had flags. And they also used, the other thing they used were um, audible things like drums and trumpets. 
you'd hear a certain trumpet, you'd hear a certain drum beat, and that would help organize your troop movements. So, so there on the battlefield, you know, you, you wave a flag, and you know, oh, there's my unit. I'm, I'm separated from them. Remember to go over to them. It's kind of like the movie The Patriot. You, you guys seen The Patriot with Mel Gibson? Uh, it, it's sort of uh, set in, you know, the hi- historical revolutionary period, using historical very loosely here. But um, Mel Gibson is, is the patriot. He's this American hero. And it's the final scene, the British, or final, it's the big battle at the end. You always got to have the big battles between the British and the, the revolutionary troops. And they start fighting it, and eventually the, the revolutionaries, they have this plan, but it kind of falls apart and it starts to crumble. And so all the revolutionaries turn and they break their ranks and they start running from the British. And Mel Gibson sees them all running. He's like, you know, no, they're running. And then he sees the flag on the ground, right? He picks it up. It's like one of these slow-mo things, you know. You know, and as he's doing that, all the soldiers who are running this way, you know, they see the flag and they're like, and you know, because of Mel Gibson and the flag, all the troops, the, the battle turns and they all go. That's the idea. It's hold up that flag and then in the midst of chaos and confusion, people rally to the flag. They gather around the banner, they get around the standard, and now they're a unified people again. So the idea is that someday God is going to raise up a flag for his people. He's going to hold up a big banner and wave it around. That the, the root of Jesse, this descendant of King David, the Messiah, is going to lift up a banner so that the peoples will rally to him. And actually, that's not correct. It's not that he will lift up a banner. He is the banner. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. So he's not going to actually hold up a literal flag. He's not on the flag team or something like that. He's, he is the flag, so to speak. This is a metaphor here. He's, he's, he's the thing that everyone's going to rally to. Everyone's going to gather around this guy. He is the tool. He is the banner that God is going to raise up and people will come to him. And when he does that, God's people will be gathered to him. Look at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, Cush, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, the islands of the sea. What I want you to uh, do is take out your sermon notes real quick here and look at the second page. What I did was, on the left of the map, I listed all of those places with numbers. And then on the map, I put the numbers where those places are so that you can just get a sense of all the different places. You can see where Assyria is, Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, Cush, Elam. Way over, Elam is way over in would be like southwestern Iran today. Uh, Babylonia would be southern Iraq, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. So God is going to reach out his hand, and all of his people Israel who have been scattered all over, he's going to gather them back together. God is going to find the dandelion seeds. He's going to pull them together. But actually, he's going to do more than that. It's not limited to that. He's going to do that, certainly, but there's more. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him. So it's not just that God's going to regather Israel. He's not just going to regather the Jews. He's also going to gather the Gentiles. He's also going to reach out to the nations, which is an interesting twist. It's like God's going to restore what was lost plus more. 
He's going to bring the nations in as well, which is an interesting twist in the, the history of the Bible. Because up to this point, it's always been God's working with Israel, God's working with the descendants of Abraham, it's Moses and the Israelites. And, and God says, yeah, in the future I'm going to do that, and I'm going to gather the Gentiles and the nations into my people. So in, God's, in, the, in that day, it's not just going to be Israel, it's going to be Israel and the nations as one people gathered together. God is going to have one people composed of Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nations. He's going to gather them all to himself. Now this is interesting because, as I said, it's kind of a a new twist in the biblical story in some ways. But it's also a major theme in Isaiah. If you're not going through Isaiah, you can find so many passages where God speaks of not only reaching out to Israel, but also reaching out to the nations. Uh, Look at your sermon notes again on the back. Here's just a couple for instances. This isn't all of the passages, it's just a few. I'll just read a couple of them. Look at the top one. We've studied this passage before. In the last days, it's another way of saying in that future period, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains and all nations will stream to it. Or look at the fourth quote down, Isaiah 49.6. He says, God says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? Let me just give you a little context. Here God is speaking to that messianic figure. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here even in Isaiah we see this bigger vision that God has. And in fact it's right there if you go back to chapter 11 of Isaiah it's right there in chapter 11. Uh, Look at chapter 11 verse 12. Here it is again. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. So both the nations and Israel. Or I think it's even hinted at the end of verse 11. Look at verse 11. You get all this list of places. Then what's the last place? The islands of the sea. Now that's interesting because Assyria didn't control the islands of the sea. In fact, the islands of the sea is kind of uh, Old Testament shorthand for saying the people way, way out there. You know, people way out there that we never even met because they're way out in the sea and we don't, we're Israelites, we don't sail. Israelites weren't a seafaring people. They weren't like the Phoenicians or anything like that. So they're like, you know, all the people of the world, and then the people way out there, way out there, islands of the sea. So so here, I think there's even a hint that God is looking far beyond Israel, far beyond His people to the whole world. So God's plan is that in the future, He's going to reverse this. Instead of Israel being sort of blown to the wind, God's going to regather His people. But it's not just going to be that. It's going to be the gathering in of the nations. Even the very nations that attacked Israel are going to be gathered in among His people. God is going to do this amazing new work in the future. Well, then raises another question. Okay, so when is this all fulfilled? Who is the root of Jesse? And how does He gather the people? And when does this gathering take place? And the answer, of course, is that the root of Jesse is Jesus Christ. And the gathering of the nations is taking place right now. As the gospel of Jesus is preached to the whole world, and both Jew and Gentile are coming into the people of God. Uh, And just to show you where I'm getting this idea, look over in the New Testament to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, the New Testament, chapter 15. It's on page 1125. The New Testament tells us how the Old Testament is fulfilled. You want, to know how to, you want to understand Old Testament prophecy? The secret is, look at how the New Testament interprets it. And the New Testament tells us how to interpret the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is self-interpreting. 
We see in Romans chapter 15 that Paul uses this very verse from Isaiah and he shows that it's fulfilled in the church. Look at uh, verse 7. Paul's talking about the the unity of the church. This is the whole point of Romans 15. Let's be unified. Uh, Verse 7. Accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you. you know, let's be unified as a church. Accept one another in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become the servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. So Christ has come. He came as a Jew to the Jews. And through that now, the, the Gentiles are being gathered into God's people. They're praising God too. They're becoming the worshipers of Yahweh. And then to prove this point, he quotes four Old Testament texts. Are you still with me here? Look at verse 12. There's our text. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Kind of a, a paraphrase from the Greek translation of Isaiah 11.10. 10. So the point is that, that Paul sees the fulfillment of this prophecy in Christ and the church being gathered together. That as the gospel is preached among the nations, as first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, first to Israel, then to the nations, that that Isaiah 11 is happening, wherever Christ is being lifted up, Isaiah 11 is taking place and God is gathering His people. The Exodus, part two, is happening right now. The second Exodus is happening all over the world as God is gathering, rallying the people to Himself as Jesus is being lifted up. This whole idea of the banner being lifted up and Christ uh, and gathering people to Himself it reminded me of another passage in the Gospel of John. Uh, just bear with me one more time here and turn back to the Gospel of John. It's on page 1066. Gospel of John, chapter 12, page 1066. We'll look at John 12:32. Here's the words of Christ. John 12:32. He says. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. He was about to be crucified. And He was literally going to be raised up. I don't know, some of you saw the Passion. You, you kind of got a sense of someone being raised up. They put you on the cross. And of course, in Mel Gibson's version, there's this... You know, he's kind of crucified on this high hill. See, he really is raised up. They put him on this big tall cross and they raise him up. And then they do something with the camera where they kind of sort of swing around Christ on the cross when he's lifted up. And you get this kind of dizzying uh, sense of, of his highness and lifted upness. And so this is, this is it. Christ says, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And when I do, I will draw all men to myself. That wherever Christ is lifted up, people come to him. Wherever Christ is lifted up, He's gathering His people, both Jew and Gentile. All men will be drawn to Me, not just one type or the other, but people from all different languages and cultures and backgrounds. God's going to gather them together to Christ. Wherever Christ is exalted, wherever Christ is lifted up, He's gathering people to Himself and and the nations are rallying to Him around the banner who is the root of Jesse. It's so cool. Which means that the purpose of our church and the purpose of the Christian church, among other things, is to lift up Christ. And maybe that's a simple way to say, what's the mission of the church? To lift up Jesus Christ. I mean, that's it. It's a little simplistic, but I think it gets to the heart of it. That's why the church exists. 
to lift up Jesus Christ, to proclaim Him. And wherever Jesus Christ is being lifted up, people are rallying to Him. People are gathering to Him. Wherever He's being lifted up around the world, people are coming to Him and being saved. Christ is gathering a people for Himself today, even right here. The mission of South Shore Baptist Church is to lift up Christ. That's what we have to do. And as we lift up Christ here in our church, we're going to be unified as a church. We're going to be uh, held together. Uh, Rich uh, Chamberlain, our youth pastor, was telling me about uh, his mission trip he's going on this summer. Some of you may know our high school students are going on a short-term mission trip this summer. They're going out to Montana to help one of our missionaries. They're going to do some uh, building projects. and They're going to run a vacation Bible school out in Montana. But anyway... um, Rich was telling me, he says, this is going to be an interesting trip. He says, i got 23 high school students going. They come from eight different towns around the South Shore. So it's not like they're all Hingham kids who all know each other. I mean, these are kids from all different towns. He said, they're all different ages. Some of them are seniors who've just graduated. Some of them are beginning as freshmen in the fall. And if you remember from high school, the difference between an oncoming freshman and an outgoing senior is like, you know, can be like light years. And, and, and so he got this age diversity. He says some of the kids grew up in the church. Some of the kids, the only connection they have to the church is the youth ministry. So, you know, he's just a very diverse group. And it was interesting, he said this. Uh, he said if it was just uh, doing this trip, trying to bring these kids together without any help from God, this would be a total failure. You're like, these kids are so diverse, so many different backgrounds, and you know, when you're in high school, you, you have such a strong, clicky kind of identity. He's like, how, how in the world are these kids going to gel and become a mission team? And he said, but the thing I have hope in is that Christ is going to be with us. And that because we're doing this for Christ, he says, I've seen this before, but there's going to be this unity that I can't explain that's going to take place on this mission team. And he goes, that's my confidence, that Jesus is going with us. He goes, besides that, I, I don't know. I don't even have any hope. It's just going to be so diverse. It would be just too divisive. Everyone would be in their own little groups. And I think what he was saying about that youth mission trip is kind of a microcosm of our church. I just think about South Shore Baptist Church. It's so diverse. I mean, in some ways we're, we're similar. We're all here on the South Shore, but it's very diverse. Uh, on any given Sunday at South Shore Baptist, there's people from 15 to 20 or more different towns represented here. This isn't just all Hingamites. There's people from... Braintree and Plymouth and all these places in between. Uh, there's executives in our church. There's cops in our church. There's bus drivers in our church. There's housewives in our church. We've got the whole sort of mix of sociological, uh, economic groups. Um, there's different nationalities in our church. You know, we're thinking about this text in the nations. I was trying to think of all the different people in our church and what different countries they came from in terms of what they grew up with. I mean, most of us are Americans. We were born in America. But a lot of us weren't. And I was ticking them off, and let me see if I can remember the list. I can think of people from England, Ireland, Scotland. Uh, there's people from the Philippines. Um, there's people from Taiwan and China. There's Kenyans in our church. There's, a, there's an Indian uh, fellow in our congregation. There's people from Brazil. There's people from the Caribbean, from Latin America. I mean, it's really amazing when I thought... Oh, yeah, Canada. Well, I mean, I think of Canada as sort of like an American province anyway, but, you know... Um, <laughs> You know, the Canadians are here too. Um, all different people in our congregation. It, for all these different nations. And it's like, uh, how do you gather these people together? Oh, and on top of that, lots of different religious backgrounds. The number of born and bred Baptists in our church is actually pretty small. If you were to ask people, you know, what religion did you grow up with? The large portion of this congregation is Roman Catholic. 
And then after Roman Catholic, there's Greek Orthodox, there's Presbyterians, Nazarenes, Episcopalians, Pentecostals. I mean, the number of people who like, grew up Baptists and are Baptists from their heritage is probably pretty small in our church. Probably the largest proportion of them are down in the nursery right now. Uh, those are the ones who grew up in the Baptist church because they're still little kids. But, but most of us weren't growing up that way. So now, put yourself in my shoes. Imagine you have to lead this congregation with all these people from all these different backgrounds, three services, different personalities. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like, how can you do this? It's impossible. How can you organize a church and, and keep people together? What's going to do it? The mission statement? Well, that's important, but that's not going to do it. The strategic plan? Is that going to unify the whole church? Well, it's important. Is it this building? You know, are, are we all committed to this building? Are we committed to the building project? Is that the glue? Well, that's important, but that's not it. I believe it's Jesus Christ. And that the, the, the key to church unity is to keep lifting up Christ, keep lifting up Christ, and as Christ is lifted up, we, we who love Him are drawn to Him, and He's the glue that keeps us together. So I kind of feel like my job is, as I'm so, I don't know, this is going to my head, but I'm like Mel Gibson, you know. My job is to get the flag and just go like this every Sunday. Just wave, keep waving Christ before us. That's your job in your small group. That's your job in your Sunday school class. That's, that's your job in your family. Especially if you're a father, you're the head of the household. God has put you there to just wave Jesus in front of your family and to keep Christ exalted in people's eyes. And as Christ is lifted up, He will gather the people to Himself. But it's not just here in the church. We can't stop there. It's not just our little thing here. We've got to go out to the South Shore. The South Shore needs to see Jesus. Christ needs to be taken to, to all the towns around us. We need to lift up Christ on the South Shore. And that's where you and I come in. As we go out into the community, we have to speak the name of Christ. My daughter, as I said, is kind of at this cute age. Uh, she's seven. And, and you know, she's still at the age where she writes little love notes to her mom and dad. You know, I love you, Dad. She draw little cartoons, you know, flowers. I love you, Mom. I love you. you know, she has, it's so cute. And again, I'm told this kind of fades away in a couple of years, so I'm really enjoying it now. But anyway, she's writing all these little love notes to us. And on the inside of her folder, her first grade folder, she wrote, I love you, Mom and Dad and Will and Sarah and God and Jesus. She wrote all the people she loved. You know, it's, it's awesome. The problem is some of the boys in her class saw it. You know how first grade boys can be. They, they can be kind of ruthless. And, and they just started making fun of her. And she came home like, oh, I feel so bad. The kids saw it. I don't want to show kids my folder. And we're like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine if kids see that. You know, Jesus told us we would be persecuted if we stood up for him. You know, that's first grade persecution. You know, they don't burn you at, they don't, they don't burn you at the stake, but they call you names and stuff and it hurts because she's being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. And and I thought of that. It's like I know that most of you here love Jesus. I know most of you here are committed to Jesus Christ. When I'm talking about raising up Jesus, you're going, yeah, 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 I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, fine. We believe that. We love Christ. But but I think the challenge is how do you take what's on the inside and you know, open up the folder to the people in your office. That's the scary thing. How do you do that with the guy next door? How do you let them know that, you know what, I actually love Christ? And specifically, I think this is important, naming the name of Jesus. That's important. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, you've got to come to my church. They've got this great youth program. This kids program is wonderful. You've got to come to my church. That's good. But, you know, that's not quite it. Or, or to say, well, do you believe in God? You know, what about God? I'll pray to God for you. You talk about God and most people kind of go, eh, yeah, God, yeah, okay. But once you start naming the name of Jesus Christ, that's when people kind of go, what is this? 
That, that's when people start looking at you funny. And, and I'm just asking myself and you, we need to be willing to be fools for Christ. We need to be willing to let the world think that we're just wacko. Not that we have to be in people's faces, but we have to name the name of Jesus. Because South Shore Baptist will not rally the nations. Even talk of God will not rally the nations because it's too general and too vague. But Jesus Christ is the banner raised up. And so I think there's a challenge here for us to open up our little folders and let people see that we love Jesus specifically and let His name be pronounced and heard among the nations. But it's not just enough for our church, not just enough for the South Shore. Of course, we've got to take it to the whole world because Isaiah 11 says that God wants to rally the nations to Himself. The nations. And so that's why our church has to be committed to foreign missions. That's why the missions committee that we gave books here to is, is so important. You know, they're, they're sort of helping our church put the gospel out there. That's why we raise money for a missions budget. And some of you may come from a church tradition where there isn't really a lot of foreign missions emphasis. And I'm really thankful to be a part of this church where for 50 years they've been promoting missions. And it's good to, as a pastor to come into that. Because missions is part of it. Taking the gospel to the nations. The Kurds in northern Iraq and the Sunni Arabs in central Iraq and the Shi'i Arabs in southern Iraq need to have Jesus lifted up before them. That's why we have missionaries among the Uyghur people. You, guys, you heard of the Uyghurs? No, you haven't heard of the Uyghurs. I really didn't either until I heard about our missionary. We have a missionary with the Uyghurs. They're in central Asia. It's about 10 million of them. And I think among them there's like 300 believers and that's it. And we've got to lift up Christ before the Uyghurs and the Banjar people in Indonesia. We've got to set, we have a missionary there. We have a missionary with the Ife people in northern Togo. You know, people I've never heard of, probably never meet in my whole life, but they need Christ lifted up. And so we send missionaries out to these endeavors. What I want you to see, among other things, is that what we're doing here in the church, in our ministry here, and what you do during the week on the South Shore, and what these missionaries do way over in... Central Asia, is not three separate activities. It's one activity in three locales. The one activity is lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. We do it here, we do it out there, we do it wherever we go, because wherever Christ is lifted up, He draws His people to Himself. And it's phenomenal to watch. The world is being reached for Christ today. It's happening today. And it's not happening because the church is some finely oiled machine. It's not happening because we're all marching to some master plan. It's happening because Christ is being lifted up and He's drawing His people to Himself. Now, of course, we look to a yet fuller fulfillment of this prophecy. I believe there's more to come with this prophecy. It'll happen when Jesus returns. I just want to read that, that final gathering to you. It comes from Mark 13. Let me just read it to you. At that time, Jesus said... Men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Christ is coming back to finally and fully gather His people. And in the meantime, let us lift up the name of Christ so that all men might be drawn to Him. Amen.